0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, here in Langley, British Columbia, and in Vancouver, at the Eagle's Nest with Justin and Steve is our good pal, Matthew Stockton. How are you, Matthew? Good. How are you? I'm not, you know, still kicking, still (laughs) kicking. I still have the ahems from COVID, which is interesting. So it's like two months later now and I'm still ahemming, which is a bit of a pain in the bum. But other than that. I've managed to not get COVID yet. You're very lucky. There's a few people I know who have not yet had it and most of them are hermits. So, <laughs> I, I'm a hermit too, and I just happen to get it. So, anyway, on to another episode that you have written. And uh, yeah, it's another goodie.
1: The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus
0: Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all
1: equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately.
0: Last week, we explored the history of Chinese immigration to Canada and their significant contributions to the development of Western Canada. Chinese artisans, sailors, miners, small business owners, and farmers played vital roles from establishing an early trading post in Nootka Sound in 1788 to contributing to the Fraser Canyon Gold Rush in the 1850s and building the Western Canadian Railway in the early 1900s. We discussed the discrimination, exploitation, and perilous working conditions they faced during the railway's construction. After the completion of the railway, they endured a loss of rights, mandatory identification papers, and the imposition of a head tax, which started at $10 but eventually soared to an astonishing $500 per year, which was exorbitant at the time. As Canada's economy expanded, the $500 head tax proved ineffective in curbing Chinese immigration, falling short of the government's intentions. Nativist sentiments and deeply entrenched racism persisted, with calls for the total cessation of Chinese immigration spreading nationwide. These sentiments accused the Chinese of job theft, endangering Canadian women, lacking morals, spreading diseases, and threatening the British Empire. This dark backdrop led to one of Canada's most infamous moments in history. One of our darkest days, a day that needs to be remembered, July 1st, 1923. This is Dark Poutine episode 298, Chinese Exclusion from Canada, Part 2, Return of the Dragon. After years of Chinese immigrants being discriminated against, harassed, losing the right to vote or own land to work in specific professions, and having to pay ever-increasing head taxes in 1923, a much harsher act of Parliament would descend like a heavy, suffocating fog. One that would obliterate any semblance of fairness, any shred of compassion, one that would rip apart families' dreams and hopes that would replace them with a regime of exclusion and segregation. July 1st, 1923, what many proudly celebrate as Canada Day, would become known as Humiliation Day to Chinese Canadians, as it was the day that the Chinese Immigration Act, or what most people call, more rightly, the Chinese Exclusion Act, was implemented. This was an act implemented by Parliament under Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King that specifically targeted Chinese people from entering Canada and to try to drive those already here out. This is the only time that Canada has done this, at least this blatantly. Chinese people were told, Don't come here, we don't want you, and if you're already here, please leave. Racists don't tend to be selective on the street amongst many of the British subjects, as that's what Canadians were at the time. There were racist views, by many, against all Asians, Chinese, Japanese, and Indians specifically, and there were calls to ban all of them. But there were a few factors as to why this didn't happen. First, there were many more Chinese than Japanese and Indian people here at the time, so the Chinese were the primary focus. As a nation, China was a mess and not a significant economic power at the time, whereas Japan was and had military might, and India was a vital part of the British Empire. So the Chinese felt the burden of this racism more acutely. On the significant date of July 1st, 1923, coinciding with Dominion Day, later renamed Canada Day relatively more recently in 1982, the federal government implemented the Chinese Exclusion Act a symbolic move intended to articulate a particular notion of Canadian identity, one that conspicuously excluded individuals of Chinese heritage. In other words, the larger message was, whites only. In his article, What Was the Chinese Exclusion Act in Canada, Dr. Henry Yu, an associate professor with the UBC Department of History and the co-lead of the Centre for Asian-Canadian Research, said, quote, it was no coincidence that the Exclusion Act was rolled out on Dominion Day. It was deliberately cruel, meant to show the Chinese people that they don't belong, quote. Despite its brevity, at a mere 15 pages, the impact of the legislation was profound, profoundly altering the lives of tens of thousands of Chinese individuals. With the Chinese community, this legislation became known as the Cruelty Act. This act comprised two pivotal directives. First, the virtual prohibition of almost all new immigrants from China. Second, the mandate that within the year, every single Chinese person residing in Canada, regardless of birthplace, had to undergo a compulsory registration. Failure to comply carried severe consequences, a $500 fine, imprisonment, and possibly deportation. While ostensibly permitting the entry of Chinese merchants, diplomats, in reality, the doors to Canada were effectively sealed shut to other potential Chinese immigrants. The act remained in place for a quarter of a century, a period called the Exclusion Period. In this time, fewer than 50, yes, 50, Chinese people were allowed into the country. One of these 50 Chinese people admitted into Canada was Ernie Chan, from the Chinese Canadian Museum, here is his story. Quote, Ernie Chan was one of the few Chinese to be admitted during the exclusion era. Likely, he felt driven to prove himself deserving of the rare exception he was granted. In Canada, he became a devoted teacher and was well known for his extensive community involvement. Growing up in China, Ernie attended an American boarding school, His talents drew the attention of Canadian missionaries who sponsored him to come to Canada. Ernie arrived here in 1928, five years after the Exclusion Act became law. Ernie joined his sister in Moose Jaw and worked in a fruit store to earn money. He graduated from the University of Saskatchewan with a degree in mechanical engineering. However, he never found work as an engineer. Instead, he found his calling as a teacher. From 1939 to 1974, Ernie taught high school. Over his long career, he instructed on everything from drafting and engineering to navigation and surveying. At one point, 15 of the 16 drafting teachers in Saskatchewan were his former students. In his spare time, Ernie was involved in a variety of community groups, interests, and causes, including the arts. And for many years, he could be seen twice a day, in front of the Star Phoenix newspaper offices and painting the latest news headlines on the building. For his service, Ernie received many awards, including being named a member of the Order of Canada in 1984. End quote. Wow, cool. Ernie was an interesting guy. When I, when I was visiting
1: the museum to do the, the research, uh, the museum is fantastic, by the way, we can talk about it at the end of the show. One of the team members was talking to me, and amidst the the deep conversation we're having, uh, we had a bit of a moment of levity when we're agreeing how uh, handsome Ernie was when he was young. (laughs) He was really a fine looking man. And uh, we also talked about the fact that he had a pretty good life, even though he probably faced lots of racism at the time, and that he really was an exception to the rule of the story of what so many others went through. And, and I think let's get back to, to when the act was implemented and we can tell the story of, of some of those other men who didn't quite have it as good.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it was rough for a lot of people. So when the act was passed, notices were placed in newspapers, public places, and on lampposts from coast to coast. The notices were written in both English and Mandarin to ensure the right people got the message. This is what one of the notices said, quote, As required by Section 18 of the Chinese Immigration Act, Chapter 38, 13-4, George V, every person of Chinese origin or descent in Canada, irrespective of allegiance or citizenship, is required to register within one year from the 30th day of June 1923 with one of the registrars in the list below. Chinese living at a distance from a registrar may, if so they desire, register with the postmaster of their district. Registration forms will be available at each place of registration, and each person applying for registration should produce his landing certificate, and must produce three untouched and mounted copies of his photograph measuring one and a half inches from the top of the head to point of chin, without head covering, full front view showing both ears. Section 34 of the Chinese Immigration Act, 1923, provides that where any person of Chinese origin or descent fails to register as required by Section 18 referred to above, he shall be liable to a fine of not exceeding $500 or to imprisonment for a period not exceeding 12 months or both. Chas Stewart, Acting Minister of Immigration and Colonization, end quote. The list of registrars included names and addresses in Alberta, B.C., Manitoba, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan, and the Yukon Territory. While the exclusion parts of the act concerned the Chinese community, it was the registration order that people most feared and opposed. Being forced to report to a government office and answer a barrage of questions reminded many Chinese of the traumatic interrogation experience they faced when they first landed. Many feared they would be penalized for not recalling events perfectly or consistent with what the government had on file. Meanwhile, men, they were mostly men, who had entered as merchants and were originally exempt from the head tax, wondered what would happen should they admit their business had failed and they had a different job. Rumors abounded that they would be deemed laborers and charged a head tax fee of $500 or immediately deported. So people were afraid. The community sent envoys to Ottawa in a futile attempt to overturn the mandatory registration provision. This, of course, failed to sway the government. The registration process was not just ticking a box. It was intrusive, detailed, and meant to be difficult for non-English speakers. It also served as a message for the person being interviewed. You're not wanted, you will fall in line, and you will be watched. Each registration was documented in a one-page form numbered 44 in the government's Chinese immigration record-keeping series. By the one-year registration deadline, over 56,000 Chinese people living in Canada, this includes people who were born in Canada, were registered, each recorded by a CI44 form. The form includes the name and known aliases— address, occupation, age, marital status, and the name and address of their spouse and or children in Canada, and it includes a photograph. It consolidates information on the individual's entry into Canada. This includes their place of birth, village, city, and district or province in China, original port of admission, the name of the ship they came on, original date of arrival, amount of head tax paid, and serial number of CI landing or replacement certificate in their possession. The form also recorded the individual's height and facial marks and physical peculiarities, remarks made by the immigration official, and any existing file numbers that the government already had on the individual. Photo ID was considered cutting-edge technology at the time. Systemic racism, it seems, required a great deal of paperwork. Once they were registered... Every single person of Chinese descent in Canada was forced to carry their CI certificate. Police and other officials would do spot checks on the streets, in homes, and at places of employment. If you could not produce your CI certificate, you'd be detained until you did, or risk a fine, jail, or deportation if you didn't have one.
1: Yeah, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call the actions of a totalitarian regime, not a, not a Western democracy. Mike, think about it. Think of like the stories that have sort of di- totalitarian states throughout their history and them doing things like this, right? And, and it also, this sort of thing, if you stop and think about it, it really sort of, it's, it's like movies from a dystopian future, right? But, but, but this was our very own dystopian past. When you're listening to this, if it doesn't immediately place a chill in your heart, I, th- I think reflect on it, right? So imagine if your heritage is Italian or French or German or Dutch or Greek or whatever, right? Imagine that that's your heritage. You are born here in Canada, but the Canadian government has deemed that we don't want your type here and force you, yes, you, to register, carry a card, and if you don't, you could be put in jail or deported. On top of that, you can't vote, you can't own land, you can't take specific jobs. While it's shocking for us to hear the words a racist state when thinking about Canada and our own country, it's hard to deny that the fact is that during this time, Canada was. And, and it's truly shocking, isn't it? It
0: really is. Douglas Young, Y U N G C M O B C, OBC, Canada's first Chinese-Canadian member of parliament, was born in 1924 and grew up during the exclusion period and shared his thoughts about this time. From a quote that Matthew found on the wall of the Chinese Canadian Museum in Vancouver, where they currently have an exhibit about the Exclusion Act, was an amazing resource to help with this episode. Young said, quote, I think one of the most horrifying experiences that we Chinese Canadians had to undergo was the fact that even though we were born in Canada, The Canadian government didn't recognize us as being Canadian citizens. I was born in Victoria in 1924. He's also quoted in the Canadian Encyclopedia website in a profile about him, quote, There was no such thing as a Chinese-Canadian. The Chinese, even if they were born in Canada, didn't have the right to vote, they weren't recognized as citizens, couldn't practice certain professions, end quote. We'll talk more about Douglas Young a bit later on when we get into how the Exclusion Era ended. But first, let's take a break. Hey Dark Poutine listeners, Mike here. Are you ready to dive deep into the mysteries of the supernatural? Join me and award-winning paranormal researcher Morgan Knudsen as we dissect chilling phenomena on supernatural circumstances. From Spine-Tingling Hauntings, To creepy cryptids and other paranormal subjects, we'll be your guides on this extraordinary journey. We're in Season 2 right now, so there are plenty of episodes for you to catch up on. Buckle up and explore the unknown with us and numerous expert guests. Download Supernatural Circumstances wherever you podcast. Library and Archives Canada holds immigration case files containing the certificate details of these Chinese Canadians. However, these files are not accessible to the public due to stringent privacy policies. Regarding the certificates themselves, while some are available in public archives, a significant number may have been lost or discarded possibly unintentionally by descendants or intentionally by individuals seeking to distance themselves from a painful past. Upon acquiring citizenship, certain Chinese Canadians chose to burn the discriminatory papers that had long exerted a restrictive influence on their lives. One thing we learned in our research, in talking to Chinese Canadians and from Matthew's visit to the Chinese Canadian Museum, is that many older Chinese Canadians didn't want to talk about this time with their children or grandchildren. That they saw this era either as a source of shame or of a time that needed to be forgotten. Again and again and again, we read stories about family members discovering the cards that were saved in shoe boxes or attics and approaching their parents or grandparents about it, and them being upset and refusing to talk about it. Catherine Clement, the curator of the Chinese Canadian Museum in Vancouver, was interviewing veterans for an exhibit when she was curator of the Chinese Canadian Veterans Museum. That's when she first saw these cards. From an article titled, When Chinese in Canada Were Numbered, Interrogated, Excluded, on the website projectprotech.com Quote, They'd tell me stories, we'd look through albums and their little shoeboxes, and I kept on finding this card, said Clement. Why would these Canadian-born people, veterans no less, have documentation to confirm their non-status in Canada? A code at the top left corner of the cards offered a clue, CI-45. Clement was shocked to find out what had gone on. She remembers one veteran's reaction when showing her the CI-45. He was so angry and red-faced. They gave this to our parents. Can you imagine what our parents felt? There are so many different ways the government could have registered Canadian-born children, but they chose to send them a signal by giving them an immigration card. Quote. Speaking of families, one of the most damaging effects that the Act had was the tearing apart of families. Many of the Chinese immigrants who had come to Canada were men. Their intent was that they would get here, establish themselves, and then bring their wife and children over. However, due to the increasing head tax over the years moving the rest of the family to Canada was delayed and then delayed again as they could not afford to move. By 1923, Canada's Chinese communities were primarily bachelor societies, where men outnumbered women by a ratio of almost 28 to one. When I was at the Chinese Canadian Museum, I watched a film about the bachelors.
1: And to be honest, it it really hit hard. And I ended up being a little bit teary-eyed. Um, so many of these men that were called bachelors, even though they had wives and children back in China, right. they spent their lives alone in Canada. Mm-hmm. Many of them lived together to form sort of some sense of family or community. And, you know, uh, through interviews with Chinese Canadians who are children back then, in this video, they talk about how many of them were are kind of known as uncles to them. These men would often. You know, give the kids gifts or candy, and take them to the horse races or to other outings, giving their parents a, a bit of a needed break for the, from the little rugrats. I think, in some ways, but it just goes to show that these these men yearn for family and miss their own children. So, the Chinese in Canada kind of became their children, or at least their nieces and nephews, right? Yeah. Um, and what really hit me was one story of how some of the men would sew money into their clothes, so that if they suddenly died they could be buried as there was no immediate family that would claim their bodies to bury
0: them. That is one of the saddest things I've ever heard. That is really, really sad. I know, I know. It's, I know. It's so sad. Oh my gosh. One of these bachelors was a man named Yong Sing Yu from a recent CBC article titled 100 Years After the Exclusion Act, Anti-Chinese Racism in Canada Remains. Quote, Yung Sing Yu had just returned to visit his family in Zhongsan County in China after spending a decade working in Canada. While there, he spotted the woman who would later become his wife washing clothes beside a stream and was smitten. Then his mother kind of looked into it and asked and found out who it was. And then arrangements were made, and the next thing you know, they're married. Yu's wife was pregnant when he went back to B.C. where he worked as a laborer and cook. He thought his family would join him there. He did not know it would take nearly three decades for that reunion to happen. End quote. This was the grandfather of Henry Yu, the UBC historian who has dedicated his academic career to documenting the history of the Chinese Canadian experience. His grandfather's wife and their daughter, Yung Kong Yi, finally made it to Canada in 1968. Khan Yi is Henry Yu's mother, and she was 28 years old in 1968, the first time she ever met her father. The article goes on to talk about how the act affected Henry Yu's family and many others. Quote, it had torn his own family apart for years, but the Exclusion Act had also denied many Chinese men the chance to start families of their own and force them to form bachelor societies. When you was three or four years old, he'd visit Chinatown with his grandfather. As soon as they'd walk into a cafe, his grandfather's friends would light up and shower the young boy with candies and treats. You said he realized later that his grandfather was sharing him with the men who would never know what it is like to have a partner, children, and grandchildren. Those exclusions and those denials of humanity, it's not just about, oh, Chinese couldn't vote. There's also a kind of second-class citizenship and second-class humanity that they were allocated to, you said, end quote. Another story of a Chinese man who wanted to return to China but couldn't because he could not afford it is found on the wall of the Chinese Canadian Museum. It reads, quote, Another story of a Chinese man who wanted to return to China but couldn't because he could not afford it was found on the wall of the Chinese Canadian Museum. It reads, quote, with the Exclusion Act in place, some were forced to beg friends or associations for money for a ticket home. Quote, I grew up in a poor family from an early age and had to migrate overseas to make a living. I endured and survived the vicissitudes of life, but now I am almost 70 years old, still struggling in places where I don't belong and still trying to find some work. My health is deteriorating, my hands tremble, my steps are slow, and no one will hire me. I want to buy a ship ticket and go back to my homeland, but my pocket is empty. Many brothers advise me to return to China so that I would not die as a ghost in a foreign land, end quote. And that quote is attributed to Yu Sit from Wong's Benevolent Association Archives. Doesn't that phrase really sort of hit you hard, a ghost in a foreign land? Again, another sad story. Like, holy smokes. Yeah. These are moving stories.
1: Yeah, and it was just loneliness. (laughs) Loneliness in a country that doesn't want you, but you're kind of stuck, right? Mm -hmm.
0: The exclusion era ended in 1947, nearly a quarter of a century after it was enacted, and decades more since the Chinese head tax was implemented. To tell the story of how it ended, we're going to talk about the experience of Douglas Young, the first Chinese-Canadian member of Parliament, who we earlier quoted. Having been born in Victoria, B.C. in 1924, he was one of the first babies born in the exclusion era. And even though he was born here, he was legally not considered a Canadian citizen. He attended Victoria High School and grew up in an incredibly discriminatory environment, He had to carry an identity card. He was not allowed to vote, to practice medicine or law, amongst many other draconian restrictions. When World War II broke out in 1939, Chinese people in Canada were excluded from military service. But in December 1941, when Japan invaded Pearl Harbor, they opened up a whole new front in the global war. All hands were needed on deck and out of desperation the British Empire, of which Canada was a part, begrudgingly allowed minorities to enlist. Despite how they had been treated here in Canada, many men of Chinese descent enlisted into the war effort. They saw this as an opportunity to prove themselves as Canadians and earn basic rights. A very young Douglas Young was one of them. In the profile of Douglas Young on the Canadian Encyclopedia website, Young is quoted as saying, quote, some of us realized that unless we volunteered to serve Canada during this hour of need, we would be in a very difficult position after the war ended to demand our rights as Canadian citizens because the Canadian government would say to us, What did you do during the war when everybody else was out fighting for Canada? What did you do? So a few of us volunteered to serve, and my group was probably the first to join up. End quote. The article goes on to profile Young's service. Quote, In 1944, Douglas Young enlisted in the Canadian Army. He was among a group of 12 to 13 Chinese Canadians who volunteered for Operation Oblivion, a British special operations executive plan to send agents of Chinese background into Japanese-occupied China as spies and saboteurs, and to arm and train Chinese soldiers. Young trained at a secret location on Okanagan Lake in BC and in Australia. He was injured during a parachute exercise during training and remained in Australia as an intelligence instructor. In the end, Operation Oblivion was cancelled when Allied High Command decided that the Pacific Theater north of New Guinea would be led by American forces. Five Chinese Canadians were deployed behind enemy lines in Borneo and later received a military medal for their bravery there. End quote the wartime service of Jung and other Chinese-Canadian soldiers played a crucial role in challenging prejudiced perspectives entrenched in mainstream Canadian society. White veteran groups who had fought alongside these Chinese-Canadian men, along with church groups, began exerting pressure on the government to put an end to the Exclusion Act. In 1947, the British Columbia provincial government lifted voting restrictions. Because Canada became a signatory following World War II of the United Nations' Universal Declaration of Human Rights, with which the Chinese Immigration Act was inconsistent, the Canadian Parliament repealed the Act on the 14th of May 1947, following the proclamation of the Canadian Citizenship Act 1946 on the 1st of January 1947. Chinese immigration resumed after the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act, But regrettably, discrimination persisted. Shockingly, it wasn't until the 1950s that any substantial effort was made to address this issue. It was during this time that the provinces of British Columbia and Ontario passed some of the first legislation making it illegal to discriminate in housing and employment based on race. What's striking is that, for the initial half of Canada's history, not only was racial discrimination pervasive, but it was also formally sanctioned by all levels of government, provincial, municipal, and federal. This meant that the machinery of government actively supported and enforced racial discrimination, essentially promoting white supremacy. Even as late as 1950... Border officials resorted to using x-rays on young Chinese individuals as a means of ensuring compliance with age limits for family reunification programs. This unsettling practice underscores the persistent and deeply entrenched nature of discriminatory attitudes and actions against Chinese immigrants in Canada. The liberalization of immigration policies under the governments of John Diefenbaker and Lester Pearson were vital. This began with eliminating restrictions based on national origins in 1962, followed by establishing the world's first points-based immigration system in 1967. On June 22, 2006, then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper issued a formal apology in the House of Commons, with the initial phrase of it, Spoken in Cantonese, compensation of approximately $20,000 was promised to survivors or their spouses in acknowledgement of the head tax. On May 15, 2014, then Premier of British Columbia, Christy Clark, offered an apology in the Legislative Assembly, unanimously passed to redress historical wrongs. Here's part of what Premier Clark had to say that day.
1: With this apology today, we cannot undo this wrong and we must never erase it. It is a stain on our history, but it's a piece of history we are obliged to remember because there is no truer thing than the fact that if you forget your history, you are doomed to repeat it. We are better today in British Columbia. We are better because of the contributions of immigrants from all over the world who've helped build this place together. And we are going to continue to strive To be better all the time, this is one important step on that path in offering a formal apology for those historical wrongs that were done and finding a new chapter in reconciliation with those who were so irreparably harmed by acts of government in this
0: House. While individual compensation was not provided, a $1 million commitment was made to a legacy fund for supporting initiatives addressing historical grievances, the formal apology underwent a three-month consultation with various stakeholders to ensure its appropriateness. On April 22, 2018, then-Mayor of Vancouver, Gregor Robinson, issued another formal public apology. So much has changed for the better, but to this day, fear and economic resentment still fuel anti-Asian racism. For example, the housing affordability issue in Canada and especially in Vancouver has been blamed by many as being driven by, quote, rich Chinese buying up the properties.
1: Uh, Mike, this was actually one of the first things I heard from people that, you know, people in my friend group who quite frankly ought to know better um when mm-hmm. i when i was complaining about how expensive property it was when i was looking to buy a home you know mm-hmm. housing on affordability is really complex and in in fact in my opinion it lays at the feet of the national provincial and local governments who created so much red tape for building new housing but there's this like shorthand of oh you know i heard it so many times when i moved here eight years immigrants ago. yeah No, specifically the Chinese immigrants, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. I fell into that rhetoric at one point where, uh, you know, I was listening to what people were telling me, and it was like, oh, you know... Sure, it's that. And then I did a little bit more homework. And like you say, it's a much more complex issue than just pointing in one direction. There is so much to it. There is so much to the housing crisis. And that's another thing that I'm kind of mulling about uh, doing an episode on in the new year. Hmm. We'll talk about that more later. So also most recently, the COVID pandemic was called by you-know-who to the south the China virus, and during the pandemic, we saw a lot of discrimination and finger-pointing in our Asian communities. Both examples should resonate as warning signs now that you know the story of the Head Tax and Exclusion Act, which started with, they took our jobs, they took our housing, they bring disease. As a country, we need to remain vigilant that these little voices in society, by a segment of racist and ethnocentric people, don't become a chorus that the whole country is singing. Instead of participating in that rhetoric, appreciate what Chinese Canadians have done for this country, appreciate their perseverance in the face of state-sanctioned racism, and appreciate them as the neighbors, colleagues, friends, and relatives that they are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and to the point of perseverance, you know, I I, uh, I titled these episodes "Enter and Exit the Dragon" as as a homage to Bruce Lee because I love me some Bruce Lee films. And Mike, by the way, Justin doesn't like Bruce Lee films, so I think you and I need to do a Bruce Lee evening together. You changed the title of the second one.
0: Yes, so you had it titled as "Exit the Dragon," but to me that was like, well. It sounds like the Chinese just left, and it was like a... Did they leave in shame or whatever? So I just decided I would use another name for a Bruce Lee movie... It was called The Way of the Dragon in Hong Kong, but it was released in the United States as Return of the Dragon. So that's why I Excellent. chose the name Return of the Dragon, because you know what? The dragon ain't going anywhere. No. We are happy that Canada is the mosaic that it is.
1: And Mike, you know, I, I live here downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, I live in a building where... Hmm, let's say probably 15% of of my neighbors are of chinese origin um and in fact we have some of the instructions on where to uh where where to where to um uh recycle downstairs in the garage are are in and mandarin and english and sure I have colleagues and friends and neighbors. and Me too. To me, it's like, th- these are the great people that I live with and I work with and I play yeah. with and I just don't under- I don't understand the racism.
0: So you left something out of this episode that I think is super important and it's something that we need to talk about just here at the end. So in a historic turn of events, Kenneth Sim, a well-known Vancouver entrepreneur, achieved a significant victory when he was elected as the mayor of Vancouver on October 15th. 2022, three days shy of his 50th birthday, running under the banner of the ABC Vancouver Party. This achievement marked the first time a challenger had unseated a sitting mayor of Vancouver since 1980 when Mike Harcourt upset the incumbent, Jack Volrich. Notably, Kenneth Sim also made history as the first Chinese-Canadian and person of color to be elected the mayor of Vancouver. Sim, has faced a notable challenge during his mayoral term when the Globe and Mail published allegations from an anonymous source, allegedly from within the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, suggesting Chinese interference in the 2022 Vancouver municipal election. In response, Mayor Sim firmly denounced these insinuations, emphasizing his commitment to uncovering any evidence of foreign interference and defending the integrity of Canadian elections. He stated, Quote, if there's proof of foreign interference in our election, I want to know about it because I'm a Canadian. But right now, there are a bunch of insinuations. End quote. And the ban played on. Hmm. Ken Sim
1: won, not because of any foreign uh, influence. Ken Sim won because he had the best platform. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I voted, I just looked for everyone in the ABC party and tick tick the boxes because... Uh, I actually thought he had a great platform. So, uh, this sort of this sort of stuff is just ridiculous. I mean, there's there's two things. To, there's two ways of looking at this. Is number one, foreign governments often and always try to try to meddle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but number two, <laughs> those foreign governments trying to meddle. You know, that's their gig. It's It has nothing to do with the people here. Right, right. right. Uh, and and Ken is like a businessman that's been here for years. He has no connection to sort of the Chinese government. And that sort of bull crap is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, Like it's just, it's insanity. And the Globe and Mail publishing that crap, Jesus.
0: It's interesting that... Uh, most of the news organizations in Canada, other than the CBC, the newspapers specifically, are all sort of a little right-leaning, which is interesting. So there's no newspaper that has wide, broad distribution that is really mm. uh, sort of a dissenting voice or even a middle-of-the-road mm. voice. So so it's, mm. it's fascinating. Uh, like if you look at, the Vancouver Province, the Vancouver Sun, they're owned by the same company. I don't know why those two papers need to exist, but they do. And they, they sort of, if you look, the articles are exactly the same in both of them. Why is why is that even a thing, you know? It's mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Why isn't the province a dissenting voice to the Sun? But it's not. It's not. And not really. No, not at all, because it's owned by the same company. <laughs> Anyway, what a weird world we live in. Hmm. Capitalism. <laughs> it works.
1: Hey, don't be bashing capitalism.
0: <laughs> anyway, let's move on. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week.
2: Hey, Mike and Matthew. It's Matt here from Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Just calling to wish you all a happy holiday season that's coming up. And uh, yeah, we have the Christmas tree here in Boston, the one that comes from Nova Scotia every year, Uh, getting lit up tomorrow, so that will be exciting. I think it's the 50th anniversary of the tree coming from Nova Scotia to Boston every year. I've been uh, listening to some back episodes. I'm trying to catch up. And I just listened to your Iran hostage crisis episode yesterday. And um, it was very interesting because growing up, I grew up outside of Boston. And uh, growing up, my father would always point out a house to me and say, that is the Shah's house. And I was always intrigued by this. And apparently, a couple years ago, I discovered that when the Shah of Iran left, he actually came to my hometown for... Several months in state at this home. And apparently, my father and mother met him uh, a couple times uh, in the course of their day. And um, very interesting individual. He had uh, two bodyguards with him at all times because he was very fearful of being assassinated, even in America. And he also had bags of soil with him. And my father asked him, what is the soil for? And he said, "If if, whenever I die, I will die on Iranian soil. And so apparently when he did die, the soil was placed under his body, or while he was on his deathbed, and he actually did, in fact, die on Iranian soil. So, um, yeah. Um, But Keep up the great work. Uh, Mike, you guys need to come to Boston. Uh, Have a meetup. Um, We'll work on that. Uh, Come visit our wonderful city. And um, guys, go take a shit in your hat. And just remember that after you do that, don't forget to wipe. Have a great day, guys. Bye.
0: (laughs) Oh, boy. <laughs> what a great story about the Shah. That was interesting. I didn't know that part of things. Uh, I didn't. I haven't looked it up to verify or whatever, but it's an interesting story regardless. Um, I like that his folks met him and all that kind oh, of thing. Oh, I want to go to Boston now. Have you
1: ever been to the architecture in that city, in the old bits? So beautiful.
0: Well, I'm thinking about going to Salem which, uh, for obvious reasons, because I'm interested in all that sort of dark, weird stuff, and I have a friend there, uh, Kate from uh, "Ignorance Was Bliss" podcast, who you've met as well. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, so maybe, maybe we can work something out and and go to Boston and and visit Kate, have a meet up, et cetera, et cetera. Et I et do cetera. like Boston. Uh, I would go. I would yeah. go in a heartbeat. There you go. Uh, so thank you for your voicemail and uh, happy Christmas to those folks who are getting their Christmas tree from Nova Scotia as per usual. Why do they do that? That's kind of, uh, it's, it's got something to do with the Halifax explosion oh. and the, fo- the folks from Boston were so kind to lend a hand after that explosion that Nova Scotia remembers that every year Oh, that's since. lovely. It is lovely. Uh, let's move on to our second voicemail.
2: Hey, Mike and Matthew. It's Matt here from Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Ashley from Ottawa. I used to listen to your podcast when I fueled planes at the airport, and now I'm doing construction. And it's been a while since I listened, but I'm listening again now that I'm doing a labor job. It turns out that is the best job for listening to podcasts. Um, Anyways, really love your podcast. I'm glad you have more UFO stuff and... Uh, just different things on there now, although I love the true crime. Um, hope you all are well. It took me four attempts to get this voicemail right. So anyways, go take a shit in your hat.
0: Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I love that she uh, is is figuring out the best job she should have in order to listen to the podcast. <laughs> Oh boy! Career, career selection, so you can listen to podcasts is
0: fantastic. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah i I have a career selection, so I can do podcasts. So yeah, it's it's cool that you're you come back to the show now that you can uh, afford the time. But if you're doing labor, uh, don't hurt yourself listening to us and getting distracted because we we really want to make sure that you're safe at doing what you're doing. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one eight seven seven D A dark We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. We don't have any patrons or donut money donors this week, so I guess we've got a bit of a shorter show. So there you go. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that's it for Dark Poutine. For this week and we will be back next week with the Christmas episode and uh, I'm doing something a little different this year. It's still going to be a surprise for me. So, Okay, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye.